0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Order Bonus Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Cameron Warren, and I'm joined, as always, by the man with the stamina of a frontier ox, Jake Price. Nice. Jake, you have the greatest gaming stamina of (laughs) any individual that I've ever known. You can resist the allure of the newest, hottest titles hitting your console And you can just ignore it and just play other games. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is a skill that not many have. What can I say? What can I say? How do you do it? How do you do it? How do I do it?
1: Um, I don't know. Got no answers. Nothing for you. It's just who I am. I'm just really into the games that I'm playing, usually. Usually, like, uh, long-term listeners know, or long-time listeners, you guys know that I'm always juggling lots of different games simultaneously, and out of all those games that I'm juggling, there's usually a few of them that I'm just super into that I'm not really willing to give up, and that's kind of the case right now. It's got to be something real big to get me to stop playing a
0: game. Starfield is not big enough to get you to stop? (laughs) It would have to be, like shadows of the earth tree right
1: oh yeah shadows of the earth tree dlc i would drop everything for it um i would also drop everything <laughs> yeah. for
0: liza p liza p huh
1: liza uh. p uh i think by the time liza p comes out i will have wrapped up quite a few games
0: the liza p is just bloodborne 2 i'm just letting everyone know <laughs> right now in the community liza p is straight up bloodborne 2 so <laughs> it's Bloodborne. If you've been for waiting Xbox. for Bloodborne 2, that's what you're getting. Yeah. No, Jake, you know what? I think the truth is you just like video games and that seems to be a rare commodity <laughs> in the gaming community. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it- is it shock you that I feel like a rather large swath of gamers don't actually enjoy or like video games?
1: It's, man, I don't get it. Like, uh, I, I, I don't think that this is something specific or necessarily unique to gaming. But, man, does it seem exaggerated there? Like... Listen, uh, also, you know, people who've been listening to the podcast for a long time know this. So I work in academia. I'm a professor of uh, Latin American literature. And it's interesting because a similar phenomenon occurs in academia where we read so many different texts, right? So many different poems, short stories, novels, watch so many films, etc. That at some point, you know, it just feels like, hey, if I'm going to watch something or if i'm going to read something new it kind of feels like work but i feel like an even in academia no one complains about that no one complains about like hey there are new novels coming out um i'm just going to read this and hate it you know i'm just going to read this sometimes it'll feel like okay i'm going to read this and this is work right rather than trying to get just like purely entertainment or or like relaxation out of something like that but man in gaming is it it just blows my mind that people will play um just games for years for example um just think about all those massive popular games like i don't know overwatch league of legends dota 2 right and people will just rag on them yet they'll log in 25 hours i don't i just oh 25 hours a week right like how i I don't know i don't know it's so strange yeah
0: it's 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 with those games like the service games that people play they just hate play them for thousands of hours a year right um But also just sort of generally, right? Like a new game comes out and you've got people like sitting in streams watching streamers who play new games like every week and literally just cannot help themselves for just crapping on a game. Just saying like it looks bad or it looks old or whatever. I'm just like, do you like anything? Like, do you like video games? (laughs) Yeah. I just feel like some people need to just find a new hobby because like the truth is (laughs) I feel like this is a very positive podcast. Like, we're probably overly positive. We're probably not critical enough we need to be of the it. games that we play. And I think part of that is because we both legitimately just like this medium a lot. Yeah. And so we find a lot of enjoyment in it, right? Yeah.
1: And I think what's wonderful about games as, as a medium, right, is that especially now, there's so many, in especially in 2023, so many really high-quality games coming out that it's like, why why would we waste our time? on a game that we don't like or why would we expend energy to dunk on a game that doesn't look appealing when uh there's so many games coming out i mean why spend that energy to me it just doesn't make sense i mean if you think about this in other mediums right it's so much more rare that somebody would be like oh that novel's being published by this publishing house I don't know, guys, that publishing house has distribution (laughs) that heavily favors these continents in these reading demographics. It must suck. They must be catering to some stupid audience. You know what I mean? Like, where is that equivalency? Like in in the music industry, there's a little bit there. I feel like with like the DIY, uh, you know, uh, really indie, I'm thinking punk scene. That's like stick it to the man. We're not a major label, you know. So don't listen to stuff from major labels. But I don't know. It's just not the same. I don't feel like people go out of their way to be like, you know what? They're getting published by this, you know, or this this album is being released by this publisher, which is a subsidiary of this publisher. Therefore, they're evil and they're doing bad things to consumers. You know what I mean? It's just so bonkers. Why did we invent this crap? I feel like in in gaming culture. It's stupid.
0: there's console wars and there's you know just hate playing your favorite your game that you play a thousand hours in and there's uh, and then there's just sort of general just negativity and, and you know what it's probably just a minority on the internet being really loud it's probably just because we're kind of in that community yeah. unfortunately uh, but man aren't video games are so awesome man like yeah. there's just so much to play there's literally unlimited options if you don't like something. There's another game right around the corner in any category at any level of quality that you could ever possibly desire. I mean, we're literally just, we're feasting. We're just absolutely feasting and we're going to continue to feast. Um, And I say all that because uh, today is Starfield Day. Starfield launched in early access. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the internet is completely on fire. Everyone's running around with their heads cut off. No, honestly, I think that the review scene has been like pretty tempered. S- saw some surprising seven out of 10s from IGN and GameSpot for Starfield, mm-hmm. which I read them. They didn't sound, they didn't read like seven out of 10 reviews, but they were, uh, which yeah. is kind of interesting. And, but the takes for the game, obviously, super excited to play this. Takes for this thing is all over the place. Yeah. All over the place. So this is definitely one of those like you know just play it and find out for yourself yeah um but yeah i couldn't be more excited i played just a few minutes today and already i'm just excited to to keep digging in but yeah video games are cool man
1: they're cool yeah and i yeah i'm just to talk a little bit about starfield reviewing i think people i i'm getting a sense at least with other people like in our podcasting network that there's like a sense of relief that we don't have another Redfall situation on our hands where it's not just going to be like two weeks of pure acid, you know, and because a game, a game <laughs> flopped, um, it's it's much more tempered. And honestly, I think it helps a lot that I'm very, very speedy with the mute button on social medias. But yes. but most people, I feel like talking about Starfield, they're like, listen, it's a good game. It's a great game. And some people are like, I love this game. But I think like you're right. At, at the end of all these reviews, people are like, "Listen, you should try this. You should try it, and you should form your own opinion." And here, and I feel like these reviews are more like, "And here are a few things to watch out for, right? For good and for bad, but just give it a go."
0: I feel like this. I feel like this day and age, though, that attitude, like the gray attitude, like the analytical attitude, is just really hard for people to wrap their head around. Just really hard right. like it's hard for people to grapple with the idea of like oh, it's probably somewhere in the middle you know or like yeah you should decide for yourself <laughs> or you should like form an opinion uh, or you know or it's like you know what it's not that good right because if you you attach your identity to these things and then when somebody gives starfield a seven out of ten and you've attached your identity to you know Bethesda games for whatever reason yeah you're gonna be deeply offended because right. you're literally that person is is ripping you down yeah it's just sad to see you know i think you should attach your identity you should figure out who you are you know what <laughs> uh you're you're knuff, okay i'm just throwing that out there <laughs>
1: you're enough maybe you're really in, you should be uh, an equestrian ken right maybe that's just who you are and you should stay true to that yeah i, I don't know the whole reviewing process is is, is just kind of bonkers um But what I really enjoy from these reviews is seeing their number score, but not really paying any heed to it. And at the end of a review, think to myself, is this something that they're recommending? Is this something that sounds really good to me? You know, which is the point of reviews and which I think all reviewers are trying to do. Even us, when we select the games that we talk about here, that's kind of something that goes through our head is, well, we don't we're not going to give you a number score. We never really have. That's never been our M.O. But at the end of listening to one of these episodes, and this kind of ties back into the, the title of our podcast, is this is a pre-order bonus. Like before you make a decision on the game, you listen to us talk about it. And then you think, hey, are these guys recommending this game? Do the pros outweigh the cons? Is this the type of game that I would really enjoy? And then you can make your own decision sort of with that information in the background. And um, it's just I think it's kind of a relief to see that happening a little bit with Starfield, at least through the channels that you and I have been looking at. And uh, yeah, it's good.
0: I- yeah, I mean, I think that is that is definitely the spirit of our podcast, which doesn't make for very digestible content, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're not angry enough, right?
0: We're- <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not angry enough. We're not controversial enough. You can't see the score we gave it, so you can't hate listen to us. And you can't love listen to us because you don't know unless you actually listen to us talk. <laughs> and if you don't like the sound of our voices, then that's not going to work. So That's the thing you know. that we
1: have, right? is People will be like, can I listen to these guys' voices? Yes. Okay, I'll stick around. No, I'm out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, if you want nuanced takes on video games with general air of positivity, then you should listen to the pre us podcast, which is this podcast, and you should sign up on patreon.com slash at the $5 tier to get the show early, to get indie impressions, to get uh, all the content that we're putting out there. Uh, yeah. Check that out. Support us. Uh, all your, We love all your support. Appreciate it. We put it back into the show. It helps us buy games, helps us to play more games and do more content for you guys. Yep.
1: And that's the show. Thanks.
0: And that is it. No, I'm kidding. Jake, this is a very important episode of the podcast oh, yeah. because uh, because it's about a game called boulders gate three and and just a caveat this is not i think we will do in the future i'm not sure when a full game episode yeah we are going to do a full episode but i think this is just going to be on act one yeah uh centered around act one so we're still going to have all of our normal thoughts but it's just going to be around act one and that's partly because there's way too many games Jake's playing way too much stuff. (laughs) I actually have beaten this game all the way through 75 hours. I beat the game uh, and we're going to break it down. Jake, how are we going to do it?
1: We're going to talk about Baldur's Gate three act one in four different categories. First, we're going to talk about the, the narration on this podcast. We typically avoid spoilers and we typically, when we do talk about, you know, the, the, the story of a game, we typically don't go beyond like 20% like into a game's narrative But this time, I mean, the episode is on Act 1, and so we are going to be talking about things that are fair game from Act 1. So this is a little more than normal. So I just want you all to be aware. But we'll be talking about the storytelling. We're going to be talking about characterization, interactions, dialogue, voice acting, all of that stuff in Baldur's Gate 3 um, on this episode. Next up is Mechanics. That's how you interact with the game, the different systems that are in place, how you think strategically through different scenarios would be, I think, maybe the best application of that for Baldur's Gate 3. And then the third category is the gameplay loop. And so these are, this is like the patterns within the game, how the different systems um, cycle into each other, what is keeping your, you as a player engaged. And interested in what's happening. And then finally, impact on the industry. It's kind of funny because in the episodes leading up to this one, we've been talking about Baldur's Gate 3 and its impact on the imp- on the industry because it's inevitable at this point. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to this category, in this episode tonight, because I think it's gonna be quite robust. It's typically not the the most lengthy category, but there is so much to be said about Baldur's Gate 3 and how it is making ways in the gaming industry.
0: Jake, this is right off the bat. We, don't give, we just talked about how we don't give scores to games. <laughs> but this is a 10 out of 10 video game. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: We're also uh, hypocrites. This, this is... No, that's not an official show score. That's just me making a statement. Uh, this is one of the best games I've ever played, uh, period. Period uh legitimately now one of my favorite games of all time uh in my top 5 probably maybe even top 3 honestly getting right up there next to uh Knight's Republic which is my favorite game of all time number 1 um and yeah this is a phenomenal achievement and let's let's start off by talking about what kind of precipitates all of that which is the narrative
1: yes oh my gosh i got a lot <laughs> this to say. Is... get it out there now cameron because i might just steamroll Ugh, just crack the knuckles here
0: okay <laughs> uh yeah what can i say about the narrative so obviously you have an incredible ip dungeons and dragons yeah uh the sword coaster i can't i'm not a dungeons and dragons nerd so i'm not deep into this ip but after playing this game this ip is awesome oh yeah it is a, freaking awesome i kind of want to play DD now i want to read books i want to like get into this whole thing i'm serious like podcast i'm looking up all the stuff because it's just that good and i think let me just talk let's just talk about a couple elements that i think really make it good in act one uh just a few things just riffing off the top i think number one is the game doesn't bother you with a ton of lore build up it just right off the bat throws you and is like, hey, there's a worm in your brain and you got to get it out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And it kicks off and you're on a mind flare ship <laughs> and you're, you know, you escape and you're running around this like weird flying alien thing, which I had no familiarity with before playing this game. And so to be introduced to this like fantasy setting, but with aliens that read minds, right? Like I knew what a mind flare was just from general pop cultural references, but to see them manifested in the game, it just throws you in the deep end of this setting that is just really fascinating. And then there's this idea of it's like, you have this worm in your head and it's going to explode. Like you're going to die. You're going to turn into a mind flare at any moment. And so that just kind of kicks everything off and it's a really simple premise, but, and I just love that they didn't do this whole, like, here's this tutorial. That's going to explain like the whole background to you and like set you off on an adventure, which, you know, a lot of games do. I think about like final fantasy games, a lot of other RPGs. It's like, there's this tutorial that sets up the whole thing. This game just throws you right in, which is kind of crazy given just how much of a beast this story is and how much narrative is here that that it could pull off just like, Hey, I'm just going to throw you in and just go for it. Yeah. And we're going to kind of feed you the story as you go. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Um, And then go ahead.
1: No, um, I was just going to add on that. It's super wonderful, right? You start basically on this mind flayer ship and uh, there's an attack from uh, another group that on this ship that forces it to crash land. And so you have a chance to escape. And, you know, camera says you're being thrown in the deep end. And I want to clarify because that is absolutely correct. But the game sets the the sort of its own standards and its expectations of the player right up front. You have to make some moral decisions almost immediately, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. You and one other person sort of escape um, Lysel. And you just out of necessity, you, you, you know, form a party to try to escape the ship and try to kill, you know, other, you know, Mind flare survivors who are going to try to keep you hostage. And from the beginning, there are two big moments, right? The first one is there's heart, right? And you can decide whether or not you let her out. And yeah, um, yep. which is huge. And then one of the other ones that really stuck with me because it was super gross is that you see somebody who's like mid mind Flayer kind of operation? So they're like out on a table and their skull is cut off, and there's, a, <laughs> there's just a brain hanging out.
0: <laughs> and what an introduction, by the way! It's like horror movie, oh, body horror. This stuff.
1: This game starts off so gross. There's this cinematic of the the the. Mindflayer tadpole just
0: going in your hand and a brain and like
1: oh dude yeah. it is nasty but I love this because this sort of voice is reaching out to you and it's saying like hey I'm dying I'm suffering and you have to make the decision whether or not you're going to kill this brain and you don't really know how alive like the host body is at this point you're kind of just talking to the tadpole mindflayer in this brain and you have to make the decision of whether or not you're just going to squeeze this brain till it stops with your bare hands and um yeah, so right from the get-go, I think what this game told me was that you are instrumental in how this game's story develops. And yes, you're given this huge sense of urgency because you want to get this Mind Flayer tadpole out of your head. But honestly, what's really remarkable about this game is how it balances this this main narrative, right? the main quest line, if you will, about getting this thing out of your head. Versus all of the tiny interactions that you have with different people, all the decisions that you make, and what's going to happen to people when you make decisions regarding them, you know, in the day-to-day of this game. So I think in terms of storytelling, um, this game best captures actually doing a Dungeons and Dragons tabletop night with your friends, um, which I've done. I haven't done super often. I've always enjoyed it, but the party's never stuck around for whatever reason. But yeah. Yeah. The storytelling and the emergent narrative, the way that you create story with this story in this world, with the different characters that you meet, it's just really unmatched. I think that's something that very much belongs to like the CRPG genre, absolutely. But um, what I think the big problem is, and I struggle with this personally as a player. I know people like Cameron don't struggle with this, but you were given this urgent mission But you need to take this game slowly, narratively. You are not supposed to necessarily rush to that end goal. But you're supposed to work your way there. And so if you're like me, you have to completely change your mindset when you're playing Baldur's Gate 3. Because you're given this very urgent thing. I'm like, dude, I'm going to die. But guess what, folks? I've (laughs) I've been playing nearly 20 hours of this game. I'm still in Act 1. I still don't have the tadpole out of my head and I'm still not dead, you know? So I think, um, just sort of managing that type of expectation as a player is paramount in order to get the most out of how this story is being told in Baldur's gate three.
0: Yeah. The amount of control you, you talk about the control. I, I don't think there's ever been a game with the amount of control over the narrative as there is in this game. Just like bottom line, like straight up. I think that the closest maybe that I can think of is, um, like, uh, Maybe Mass Effect 2 into Mass Effect 3, like some of those decisions are pretty huge, right? Like yeah. main characters can die. Uh, and then thinking about uh, like Disco Elysium as well. Right. There's pretty deep branching. But those, even the decision amount of decisions in those pale in comparison to the amount of permutations that exist in this game that allows you to play through the entire game missing main characters if you make certain decisions yeah Uh, i'll just say right off the top there is a main character in this game a companion character that i did not get and did not even know they were a companion character until i beat the game (laughs) i just found this out (laughs) uh so i literally played this whole game without getting everyone who can possibly be in your party like i just didn't do it Mm -hmm. um only- and you can play through the whole game that way. And you can make sort of wild decisions on like, I'm just not going to save this person. or And so what act one does with the characters is not only do they a great job of like introducing like, Hey, here's these people that have skills. And so you're going to got to get together because they look like they could be useful in a fight. Yeah. Right. To kind of deal with the situation you're in or like figure out how to get the tadpole out of your head. Um, but as you start to talk to them and as you have conversations and this all takes place. We'll talk about how this works. But as you have conversations with these characters, you start to uncover oh, these, every single one of these characters have these really interesting, compelling yep. backstories. Yeah. And suddenly you're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Your thing is sort of intertwining with this element of the main story in an interesting way. Huh. I wonder how, like, what that is going to lead to. Uh, and it creates these really interesting decisions that you have in, okay, how do you build your relationship with this person because they will react to the actions that you take in the world and how you deal with conversations and how you handle like quests and how you do all that. Um, and you can have main characters even, and this can happen as early as act one, right? If you make certain decisions, even characters that you get as companions will decide to leave your party because you did something that they didn't like. Mm -hmm. Um, so just the craziness there. And then on top of that, you just have, like we already mentioned, you just have sort of this overarching narrative that evolves. That's kind of reveals sort of the big bad of the story and sort of your overall goal of kind of what you're going after. And it does it in just, just perfectly paced for me, like this perfectly paced way over the course of act one, you don't really understand everything that's going to, that, that you're sort of, you don't understand like why you're really there in terms of the, the whole arc of the main story until really the very end of act one, which could be for some people like 50 hours into the game, which is sort of wild. But all throughout that you're motivated by like, like we mentioned sort of that one idea of, Hey, you have a tadpole and you're probably going to die, but we can safely say that you're not necessarily, although you could die. I won't spoil, but you could (laughs) die, but, but you probably won't die. You have to actively kind of make decisions to cause chaos for, for things like that to happen. But the fact that you can and that things can keep going is just wild.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to believe how many branching paths are in this story. And I just imagine that it would be probably impossible. I feel like to have two playthroughs that were exactly the same. Like, um, so I didn't have too many reservations watching some streams about this game, because um, I might uh, I watched some streams like before I, I put in these twenty hours, and um, while some of the scenarios with some characters were the same, how they played out were entirely differently. So I, and yeah, hundred percent, just just entirely differently, and I never really felt like the game got spoiled for me, uh, which is which is wild. There were some moments right where I did things. And in the order that I did that, I just discovered them. And then I thought to myself, man, if I had done this before, I would have been better equipped to handle this one scenario, right? Because I would have had this item or I would have had this knowledge or something along those lines. And what I think is wonderful about the story as well as, I mean, combat, I feel like it compared to Divinity Original Sin 2 is much less required Um, I'm, I'm playing as a a wood half elf storm sorcerer and I have really high charisma and I'm good at persuasion and deception. And so there are some scenarios like I see this entire set piece. For example, um, this is pretty early on there's this, uh, band of goblins and somebody does a perception check in my party and they're like, Oh, this looks like it's an ambush. And I was like, okay, so this might be an ambush. So I shouldn't go through the what looks like the main path. Well, I find a path out to the side and I'm like, well, maybe I'll ambush the ambushers, you know, and take them all out. And I step around a corner and somebody spots me and it's a goblin. And the goblin's like, hey, you shouldn't be here. And then I have this deception thing. And I was like, well, I have a really important meeting with your boss. And I roll the deception and I it's a success. And the goblin's like, all right, well, Don't stay too long, quit horsing around. And so I get through, and then as I walk around, and this goblin's sort of giving me the okay, I'm able to see every single position of the goblins waiting in ambush. And I'm like, okay, so now I have a ton of information here, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not gonna do this combat right now because there are more people than I thought. but when i level up and i come back i probably i probably could do this and i'm planning out exactly how i'm going to do this ambush and so a few hours later in the game i come back and i execute my plan and it works perfectly i'm able to surprise a bunch of these guys catch them off guard have this huge upper hand tactically and that's because i felt like i had so much more control outside of combat in order like just using the story using who i am as a character and my character bonuses and my skills in order to really shape how I was going to approach every single scenario.
0: Yeah, it's a good example because I almost completely skipped combat in that area. <laughs> <laughs> I found a uh, a goblin lady who you can save in like the main sort of city camp area of Act One. Okay, you can save her and then you can get her to agree to take her to the leader of the camp. And if you do all that and roll all the checks and then you roll a final check to convince the guard outside that it's all good, like what you're doing, like taking her out of the prison, then you can get her out of the camp and then she goes and you can just go through the whole goblin camp. Like, um, like no one bothers you. <laughs> so, oh, man. Uh, yeah. So that's like one way to do it. there's, the amount of permutations and even just that one thing that we just said are wild right and the amount of ways that you can approach that situation like you you talked about how you're planning combat in different ways you know there's there's so many ways that you can get through that scenario um and it's just wild they all work it's just crazy to the degree that they all work and they all function well uh and they all fit within kind of everything that's going on. I can't even imagine the whiteboard <laughs> at Larian's office thinking about all the permutations and dialogue trees that have to exist in order for all these decisions to exist in the game. It's like the amount of passion and like handcraftedness to put all that together is just wild to me. I mean, I'm being hyperbolic, but I really can't I, it's it hasn't been done at this no one even attempts this. Like studios don't attempt this and and I don't know why because it's just crazy it's crazy to think about like okay you're developing towards here's five scenarios that you could possibly pick from where Larry and saying like here's like a thousand right depending on how you tweak the different levers uh, and that's just crazy yeah and it's all done just and it's all done and the other thing that kind of really puts the I want to say like the shine that takes it to a masterpiece level is the voice acting and the cinematic dialogue. Oh yeah. Which which is probably the best voice acting of any video game. Literally every character and every animal in this entire (laughs) game is voice acted and it's all extremely well done. Yeah. And I literally hung on every word of every character because the voice acting is just incredible. And they also have the facial, they did the mocap for almost every line of every main character. Yeah. And so you're getting like the facial reactions of all of the origin characters as you're talking to them. I have, I I do skip a lot of dialogue. I tend to skip and this game definitely skipped the least of any dialogue because I just wanted to listen to the voice acting because it's just that good. And so that takes all the story elements and just takes it up, you know, to a ten. Or two at 11, right?
1: I mean, yeah, it's wild. You mentioned the animals. You can play this entire game. I and mean, I, this is something that blows my mind about just games and game development is that there's always so much optional content that players will skip over. And what's mind boggling to me in Baldur's Gate 3 is that all these animals, if you can speak with animals, they have dialogue and they have things to say and they're all voice acted. And if you simply don't have a character that can speak to animals, you miss, I don't know thousands of hours of work (laughs) that Larian Studios has. That's crazy. That's crazy. It blows my mind that that is even an option, right? Because when you work really hard on something and you're really thorough, you want everybody to enjoy all those aspects. So it's, it's mind blowing to me that those types of things are in there. Um, I do want to mention just uh, a main part of, just to talk about the narrative strengths of Baldur's Gate 3. Cameron and I are both mentioning scenarios that relate to one of the initial political conflicts that you run into which you have three groups, you have goblins, you have a group of refugees, and then you have a group of druids. And they all have different goals and motivations. And um, in I think in most video games, you would essentially talk to all three groups, you would pick one of the three and decide you're going to champion their cause. And then you would essentially play that out, however that happens but what i feel like is absolutely remarkable in this game right and so we're talking goblins refugees and druids is that within each of those groups they have political di- like dis- uh, discussions disagreements about what they need to do and where they need to be and how they're going to interact with these the, you know the other two opposing groups in some regard and so what i realized was and cameron mentioned this right you have this goblin who's imprisoned in the in the refugee camp right and you can go and that can be sort of the the thread the narrative thread you start pulling on to find some sort of solution between the conflict of these three different groups and what i found as i was playing through because i went and i thoroughly explored each group's area and talked to people is that instead of there just being like one narrative thread that's attached to each group there's probably five per group Like there are five, like in the Druid camp, for example, uh, their leader is missing. And so they have somebody else who's sort of an interim leader who is making these decisions that are really unpopular with most of the Druids. And you could decide, okay, do I want to find this political leader? Do I just want to kill this person that nobody really likes, you know, and leave them leaderless, but without this person who's causing a problem or do I want to maybe try to work in tandem with the refugees to come up with some sort of agreement and be diplomatic about this, etc.? cetera? And so it, to me, that's where all these permutations come from, is that each group that you encounter, even though they're all bound together by different arguments or problems that are happening amongst themselves, is that there are probably 15 threads that begin, that, that lead you towards like 100 possible different solutions. And that to me just, it makes world building that much easier, that much more comfortable and that much more, I feel like organic as well. It makes the dialogue much more organic because that's a much more uh, realistic reflection of, of real, of real life. Right?
0: Yeah. And what's wild is those threads continue to act two and act three. So uh, (laughs) yeah. So like everything you're saying, like that whole political dynamic all of that like almost all of that um has an impact as you move through like the next acts main characters like stuff that happens in the narrative certain scenarios and situations that become available to you depending on choices you make in act one it's just it's wild um and it's just all done phenomenally well well jake we're already almost 45 minutes in so let's talk wait i have uh, to mechanics. share one story okay go for it
1: one story this is my last point i promise and it's
0: this is the best part go this is it.
1: the best part i told cameron about this i don't know if he laughed as hard as i did but anyway uh, i want to talk about the emergent narrative aspect where this game does a really fantastic job of getting the player to sort of imagine and create with the story and so <clears throat> i have my party it's me Lysel, and Shadowheart. And uh, we go into this giant goblin encampment, and nobody's really hostile towards us because we're not there as enemies. And we go in there, and I end up stumbling. I have a conversation with one of these goblins. His name is Crusher, and he's pissed. He's furious, and he challenges me to a fight. And I'm like, because he's like, you suck. I hate you. You half elf, half elf kind. You all suck. Kiss my feet. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he starts a fight with me. So we start fighting my party of three, this trio with um, probably five other goblins. We get Crusher down to like two HP. And then there's a cutscene. He's like, stop, 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 stop. He starts begging for his life. And so I have options. Just like, go ahead and kill him. uh, Make him grovel. Spare his life and don't ask for a reward. And I'm like, you know what? I'll spare this guy's life. And Shadowheart and Lysel both disapproved. They both disapproved. (laughs) And I was like, hold up. They disapproved because I didn't kill him. And so I'm like, no, nah, I, I want my party to like me. And I'm like, Lazelle is coming on pretty strong. And so I'm like, I want her approval, right? And so I, I go do some things in the Goblin Camp for the story. And I'm leaving. I leave on a different path. And I'm crossing this bridge. And lo and behold, Crusher is at the bridge. And he's slightly drunk. That's his you know, status condition. He's on the bridge, just standing there wobbling, looking out over this giant ravine where there's this river. And I'm thinking to myself, this is my chance. I can get Lazel's approval here. I'm going to kill him. And so I go up behind him. I'm not in combat mode. I go up behind him and have the option to shove. So I'm going to shove him into this ravine and kill him. (laughs) And I'm like, this will, this will win her approval. She'll like me again, whatever. Now you have to remember I am like a a half elf storm sorcerer. My strength is crazy low and my athletics are minus 1. Puny arms, right? And so I have a 40% chance of successfully successfully shoving him. So I go and I fail. Crusher doesn't even notice. Doesn't go it doesn't get engaged in combat or anything. Does not notice. And, of course, my party members don't actually do anything but me because I'm so deep, you know, in this narrative. I'm like, my gosh, that was so embarrassing. I can't believe I couldn't do it. And I'm like, well, I'll try again. (laughs) 40% isn't that low. So I try again and I fail a second time. And I'm like, this is the most embarrassing thing that my sorcerer could be doing right now. And so I'm like, you know what? I can't do this. And so I switch my party member to Lazelle. I have her walk behind him. She's got crazy high strength, crazy high athletic ability. It's like a ninety percent right. chance that her shove is gonna work. She just shoves him, yeets this little guy into the ravine, and it's just like Crusher was killed in the chasm. And then LaZelle just like <laughs> looks at my character and I imagine this. It doesn't say a word, just looks at my character and just you hear her say in her mind, pathetic. And so, pathetic. I want to share that story just because this game does such a phenomenal job of getting in your she, brain.
0: She would say that, by the way. She
1: would say that. She would be like, "Pathetic! You tried two times to shove You didn't even notice uh, you." D-
0: did you get to the part with the Yankee crush in Act One yet? The or did you skip that part?
1: The Yankee crush.
0: Yeah, Maybe? crush. Oh, crush. The crush. Oh, talking like to their th- little base thing situation.
1: Oh no, no, I talked to some knights, but Githyanki. You didn't
0: go in there. No. Okay. Okay, you haven't reached that yet. Okay. Yeah, Lazelle stuff gets wild. Like, let <laughs> me just tell you. <laughs> um. Yeah, let's talk about mechanics. Jay, I mean, we could go on and on about. I know. The story, I need to stop. But I think yeah. you guys. I think you get it. Okay, you get it. <laughs> All right. Uh, mechanics. Um, yeah, let's talk about specifically. I mean, we've talked about a lot of sort of the story mechanics, but there is the specific thing that underpins all of that is dice rolling. Yes. So you have ability checks, which are, um, set up with dice rolls. And so you based on like different options you choose in dialogue, uh, or in like perception checks or various checks that happen just throughout the game, either in dialogue or like scenarios or things that, that are happening or traps or whatever, you'll get the opportunity to, to roll a check. Right. And so you have a dice and you're rolling Basic, You're literally rolling a 20 sided die. Yeah. If you played Dungeons and Dragons, you already know this. And then you get bonuses to that based on your stats, right? So if you have a super high charisma, which Jake is a sorcerer, so his main stat is charisma. So you you can like you get super huge bonuses to dialogue. Yeah. Um, and so you can convince, you can basically get out of a ton of combat uh, because if you have basically like a plus you know, plus 12 in certain spots to dialogue. And so you, all you have to roll is like an eight, you know, anything higher than an eight and you're passing the check for most things. Um, and so basically what, what happens is you have this sort of gambling mechanic a lot of times, uh, because you do have situations where you don't have a bonus, but maybe you want to try and roll for it. Yeah. And then if you fail, then obviously you fail the check and you have to do whatever the game the game basically acts as the dungeon master and forces you into whatever that failed check means right something blows up or you most likely you'll end up in combat is probably what will happen um but not always sometimes they throw some zingers at you so you got to be careful (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah that that's sort of like that underpins this whole and it's such a great system because I think there's something about having the dice in front of your face which is something that a game usually does behind the scenes right like I'm going to be playing starfield over the next couple weeks there's persuasion checks and stuff in that game and they're all going to be done behind the scenes there is no dice roll and it's just interesting that they have that mechanic, right? And they and they, this is what really kind of hits home on the D&D part of it, where it's like, hey, here's the dice. You're literally clicking the roll on the dice, which was what happens with the computer. But we're going to let you physically take that action. And I think it's, inter- it's a super interesting mechanic because you could easily have done this whole game without showing the player the dice. You could have yeah. just rolled the dice for them. And I think you still would have been successful, but having the dice in front of you does something. I'm not quite sure what it is. Something like psychologically that gives a little bit more satisfaction. It gives you a little bit more. You feel like you have a little bit more control, even though it it is out of your hands, right? It's random. You're tossing the dice, but it gives you sort of that slight more element of control. Um, And especially because there's just crazy things that could happen in this game that can completely bork, how you want to play the game. Uh, and, you know, there's arguments out there of players saying like, hey, you should just let the you should let the dice roll how they roll. Yeah. And you should just go with it. And I think that that could totally be fun. That's how I'm actually going to play my second playthrough. I'm just going to let the dice roll and just see what happens. <laughs> uh, but if you want certain things to happen and you don't understand how it's all going to turn out, that's a really tough way to play and so sometimes you're going to reload the save and you're going to roll the dice again yeah um and 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 anyway it's just a really interesting mechanic you know i don't don't think i've seen this in any other game where the rpg where they put the actual stat rolls in front of your face but it definitely adds something to the game that i think is really unique
1: Yeah, um, and I think what makes this strong, I mean, this is common, right? This is common in, this. obviously, it's a TTRPG. It's Dungeons & Dragons. Right, yeah,
0: um, for sure.
1: Yeah, what I really like about it is just that you have to kind of have your stats in the back of your mind, or thankfully, because this is a computer game, right? You can just toggle, and it just shows kind of what your bonuses are to every time you make a dice roll check. Um, But what I love about playing D and D as a video game is that the dungeon master is lightning speed quick. Right. So for example, you have these checks all the time and, and you know that you're constantly rolling dice. Like for example, when I was trying to shove crusher off the bridge, I had to roll a die and I lost right. Um, Because my percentages were low, but sometimes like uh, doing a perception check will happen passively. And this is what I mean by the DM being lightning fast is, I'm walking through an area like, for example, I was in one dungeon trying to rescue somebody and there were a bunch of traps in there. And then suddenly it would it just pop up above all my characters head, you know, perception check, fail, 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 or perception check successful, whatever it is. And then suddenly a trap would appear and somebody would probably make a comment like, oh, watch out, there's a trap up ahead, right? And then on top of that, you have the option to sort of disarm that trap. And so every single time you're making the decision, it's nice to be super informed about those decisions and having the information of what your character is really good at. So, for example, my sorcerer, who's got really high charisma, is great at persuasion and great at deception, but awful at intimidation, right? And so when I see those three options pop up in a specific dialogue, I'll think to myself, hey, you know what? In this situation, you know, like I know persuasion and deception are high, so I'm going to pick one of those two. I'm not going to pick intimidation um, but I also know, and this actually just happened where I had those three options, but I also had sorcerer arcana because that's just something I tend to be really knowledge about as a sorcerer. And I thought if I were to pick sorcerer arcana over persuasion in this scenario, I'm going to glean a different type of information. Is that information more valuable to me? And so all these decisions that you get to make, I feel like you get to be really informed about them and you really get to steer where it is you want that information to take you and what information you're going to get right i found out um about a secret somebody was trying to keep from me because i chose sorcerer arcana for example over persuasion because i was able to say to them oh wait like i successfully passed the check and i was like wait no this is what's happening with this magic and they're like uh yeah You're right. That is what's happening. And then they came clean, right? Whereas if I just did persuasion, I'm going to change things in a different direction. And so I think that mechanic and having all of that knowledge just up front to you, right, um, is so nice. It's so nice to just be able to make those decisions. And like you said, narratively, it makes you feel like you're in control, but also mechanically, it makes me feel like that my player input is super valuable to what's happening in the game.
0: Yeah, I think one of my... Maybe criticisms of the game, just to be analytical about it, is this aspect is kind of tough because I would love to just be able to just play the game, like roll the dice and just see what happens. But the and I'm just, I'm kind of reiterating this point. This is a little bit of a criticism where it's like, it's hard. And, and I don't even know how you do this. Like you couldn't really do this. You couldn't pull this off. But with a game with so many permutations, it's hard not to just formulate the game the way that you want it to be formulated. Right. (laughs) Um, And so reloading the save and rerolling the dice. I mean, I did that a lot. I definitely save scummed for sure, especially because I was role playing as like a rogue with a heart of gold, you know, with high charisma uh, and high deception. And so if I rolled a deception check, I'm like, I'm, I want to win the deception check. Right. And I had cases where I didn't, get it and so i would go like that doesn't make sense with like how i'm role playing my character and so i would re-roll it i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all it is just an interesting thing to point out like in the mechanics like you know i don't know if there's actually a better way to do that but it was it was tough i think again a second playthrough i'll definitely play it as it as it plays and and just kind of see where how the dice rolls Mm -hmm. but there is something too, like you know you have decisions you have decisions uh, that you make and you have control, but your control is sort of precipitated based on the stats that you pick. Yeah. And, and, and how, and, and, and the randomness of the dice. And so the decision making and like how the story goes, you sort of are out of control a little bit. And there's that element of sort of like flip the coin and see what happens. Uh, at the same time that's also what's kind of part of the fun is that you don't you can't always like predict exactly or do exactly what you want and so anyway this is just something i'm talking about but yeah um. um
1: yeah it's it's interesting um like i said for a player like me with crpgs like this sometimes i get impatient because i'm not sure how i want to prioritize different tasks that i have because there are so many and so i think that um can like you said it can become a problem too when it feels like you can just sidestep some of that it's funny though because like in disco elysium i save scummed a lot but i've saved scummed only once so far in baldur's gate 3 Mm. Um, interesting and i think baldur's gate 3 uh, allows for you to wiggle out of scenarios a little more easily than some other games Um, which is why i don't think that's I haven't really been safe scumming at all. And you know, Cameron, and I don't have opinions whether or not you do it. Just, I just found it interesting that as I'm playing this game, I just haven't, I just haven't felt like I should. Right. Um, yeah. The last thing I want to mention uh, about mechanics, there's a whole lot going on in combat, right? It's essentially turn based, you know, um, but you can be manipulating the environment and you are thinking about how much damage you can do and, you know, positioning is everything. I think this combat is better than Divinity Original Sin Two for whatever reason. It clicks with yeah. my brain so much more easily here, and I think that's just like subtle changes that Larian has done. Maybe when they're presenting combat, um, playing as a, this is my this is probably my biggest hiccup because I'm playing as a sorcerer, is that um, some of my spells will require just an action point, and that's it. Some of my spells will require an action point plus a level one spell slot. Some of my spells will require an action plus a level two uh, spell slot. And some of them will will require a sorcerer point. And so suddenly I'm juggling a lot of different, almost like currencies when I'm doing combat. And if I want to refresh all of my sorcerer points, I'm either going to have to do a short rest or a long rest, which means that if I am dungeoneering deeply right somewhere. And I've realized that my sorcerer and the other magic wielders in my party, we are low on magic spells and we're relying on those quite a lot for whatever, because of the scenario demands it or whatever is happening or just how I'm playing those characters. Suddenly I find myself having to exit the dungeon, go all the way back to camp, do a long rest and then go back to the dungeon and then catch kind of back up to where I'm at. And, um, Part of this is my own fault. I'm not the best when it comes to optimizing how I play as this type of character class. But some of it, too, is I feel like they're in combat, which is really fun and tactical and fantastic, right? There are so many moving parts. And some character classes have more moving parts than others. And that I feel like when I run into these barriers where I'm like, Crap, I'm out of this spell that I need. Suddenly I need a lot of like electrical based spells, right. and I'm out of them, and it's causing a huge problem, and it's going to take me 30 extra minutes to do something that could take me two.
0: I think this is one of the... my Probably my biggest criticism with the game, and we haven't even talked about the combat. I... Jake mentioned, you know, this is similar to Divinity Original Sin 2, but I think streamlined uh, in a lot of really good ways. I I agree with Jake. I like this combat better, although I do think the Divinity combat is probably, there's probably a little bit more depth there tactically if that's what you're into, but this was the perfect sort of blend of that for me. But basically, it's turn-based combat with positioning using Dungeons & Dragons 5e rules for better or worse uh and the worst part is the part that jake mentioned which is the idea of spell slots cantrips and this this primarily affects magic users right and so i you know totally agree with you jake on like it can just interrupt the flow of the game a little bit when it's like okay uh for a sorcerer, right? Like you have to take a long rest in order to regenerate your level one spell slots. And you only have three level one spell slots. And so if you go into an encounter, uh, like without those, then you're going to be hampered in combat. And so what you have to do is you basically kind of have to keep an eye on that and then take a long rest, which requires supplies, camp supplies mm-hmm. in order to regenerate your party. And then you fully heal and you get all your spell slots back. And what the game does, and we'll talk about this in the gameplay loop, the game uses that as an opportunity to have a lot of character moments, to do character dialogue, to build your relationship with characters and have conversations with them like in the camp. And so there's these nice moments in the camp that happen because as you're playing, you're like, okay, let's go to camp and rest because the mechanics are forcing me to rest. It's It's a tough, I think, thing to divide and figure out. Uh, like, how do you do that without forcing moments of like, okay, you reached this point on the map. Now we're going to force you to go to camp because a lot of story things happen when you're in camp. And so I think that part of it is a necessary part, but I, you know, the, the jury is out for me on like the whole short rest, long rest. I would much rather, I'd much rather almost like you just regenerate all the slots like after every encounter because the thing is you can always just cheese it where like if you know what you're going into in a certain encounter you're just going to long rest anyways and so in my opinion it's like you should just get them replenished i think the idea in theory is that you should be tactical and be smart about how you're using your spells and use them sparingly so right. that you can sort of make it but the thing is is i never ran out of materials to long rest and you could just buy them they're cheap like the camp supplies and so it's one of those mechanics that feels like hey this is D &D, and this is how D &D works and this is the system that we're going to put in the game doesn't always work i think the best or maybe how it's intended that being said that's a nitpick uh but definitely a criticism other than that combat is super fun yeah I love the positioning elements of it, right? It's turn-based, but then you have all this terrain, you have high and low terrain, you're moving your characters around, you have action points to move and action points for combat. You have all these abilities that affect like how many actions that you have. Uh, you can use potions to determine. So, yeah. you know, war- fighters later in the game can hit a- hit four or five times like in one turn and they're just doing insane damage. Um, you know, uh, and then, you know, certain elements will do higher damage to certain types of characters. Certain certain enemies are going to be invulnerable to certain things. And then, last but not least, shove is the most powerful oh, dude, ability yeah. in the entire game.
1: Yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Yes. Um, just, a, yeah, my last thoughts about combat mechanics is use your potions. If you are like me and you just are like, I'm going to hold on to my healing potions. Well, guess what? Healing potions are just like one of... 300,000 <laughs> potion types and yeah as i have been using my potions and evenly distributing them among my party members so that they can use them as well it makes combat so much fun it makes combat so much fun when suddenly you're like you know what i'm going to consume a stamina potion here so that my fighter character gets two action points per round and i can just unleash hell on some of these characters right or even just like other consumables like hey this is a grease bottle I also have a magic wielder right here. So there's one combat scenario where there was a doorway. We had fallen through the roof into a, into a basement, and there was a doorway, and a bunch of people were swarming from other rooms to come attack us. Well, they were all being bottlenecked. So I had somebody throw a grease bottle, which spilled grease all over the floor, and then I had one of my, fire, uh, one of my magic wielders use a firebolt spell and just set the floor ablaze. And so all these people who are trying to run into attack us got a burn status and they automatically lost HP. And some of them just sat outside the room because they're like, we can't bum rush these guys without getting burnt to a crisp. And so I feel like consumables in battle were so much fun to use. Like that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, not only do I have what all of my characters can do, but I also have like this huge arsenal at my disposal to, to make things change and to manipulate the environment in my favor and to turn a crappy situation into like a really powerful situation um and then the other thing i want to mention is that uh kind of coming back to your point about the long rest is that every single battle i've been in has been tactical no matter how simple and and i think that's why i'm in favor of what cameron says here we're like Having to interrupt flow to like go back to camp and then come back into like a specific dungeon that you're doing, for example, just feels really halting. And uh, for example, I was in one dungeon and there's this giant eyeball attacking me and it kept unpetrifying a bunch of drow to attack me as well. Yeah. And I thought yep. to myself, like, well, that fight alone consumed pretty much all of like my spell resources, my, uh, I should say, combat resources. And it was a great encounter. I had a ton of fun, and it would have been amazing had I just been able to replenish everything right there and then continue in the dungeon instead of seeing that as a massive roadblock and then go back to camp.
0: Yeah, I. my last comment on combat is that this is probably the one thing that if a lot of people because this game is so big has like blown up right yeah and i think a lot of people are going to get this game not knowing what they're getting into with the combat that being said i think if people stick around for a little bit they're gonna find that turn-based combat does not have to be nerdy boring and like (laughs) super super challenging like i think this game does probably the best job that i've seen of of making turn-based combat like feel fluid feel seamless feel like you have so many options at your disposal and just it's just fun like it's fun to it's just fun combat in general yeah. where you're, you're doing a lot of stuff that would just never work in an action combat style yeah it just wouldn't work and it wouldn't have the depth of like all the things that you're able to do in this game uh that, that depth would have to be just scaled way way back in a bad way. Uh and so I think I love this combat. That being said, I love turn based combat, but I know people playing this game that really don't like turn based combat and I think this combat is like good enough, which is saying something because sometimes yeah. for, for for a lot of people turn based combat is like an immediate no. Like I'm not playing this. So
1: yeah, I've yet to encounter in a a combat encounter that i didn't like because the combat is so rock solid and like i said you have so many tools in your belt really to approach things the problem is that suddenly that those tools get exhausted real fast right um at least in my case as as a half elf sorcerer storm sorcerer
0: i'll just say this yet again shove is the most powerful move in the game
1: yeah oh my gosh i have a story there but folks (laughs) i'll save it for another time
0: if you play this game, you will have a story with shove. And let me just say this. It never gets old. Just keep doing it.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm stopping. My, yeah, loop. Thank you. Cut me off. Keep going.
0: I know we're, we're going really long, but this game kind of deserves it. Yeah. Gameplay. Let's talk about, so this game is massive. Uh, it's incredibly massive. It is, but basically your, your structure is the game is split into three acts. Uh, Each act as its own sort of quote unquote open world. Uh, And then you will kind of run around the map, do adventuring, do combat. And then as we already talked about, there's the element of like, okay, I'm running low on health. I'm running low on spell slots. I need to rest. Resting will often introduce story elements like to move the story forward. That's where a lot of stuff takes place Mm -hmm. in the camp or growing things with your character and then when you get, you know, you get to the end of a of an act, and there's a big finale, and then you go to the next act, and that's sort of the basic uh, structure of the game. Um, this game is the definition of depth over breadth, although it has breadth. I mean these these maps are not small, right? Like they're huge, but they're manageable. But the thing is, is that literally every nook and cranny of these maps, every tiny piece is filled with stuff. And so exploration is truly, it's like exploration without the open world element, but because the maps are so filled with content and secrets and stories and just little things like all over the place and weird ways that you can interact with the map, because you can do all these weird interactions where you can, you know, you can use spells on stuff and you can cast spells on things and you can shoot fireballs and stuff and you can throw barrels and just kind of see what happens in the environment and so you have this huge element of exploration and what is sort of perceived like if you are measuring the map size against I don't know like you know whatever open world pick your open world game it's obviously going to be way smaller than that but the depth is just crazy it's just crazy like you will follow the tiniest bead that will lead and I we're not even talking about act 3 today but Act Three, you it's spoiler alert, you get to Bouldersgate, not a big spoiler. Act three takes <laughs> place in the actual city of Bouldersgate. It is literally the entire city of Bouldersgate. You can go in every single building. And there is stuff in every single building and NPCs with dialogue and secrets and books and notes. It is wild how far it goes. And so really I think the game, I've talked about sort of that basic structure, but the game is built around, Hey, go explore and just see what happens. Like go adventure.
1: Yeah. I would say when it comes to the gameplay loop, some games have it really easy. For example, like a day in starter Valley is going to take you 10 to 20 minutes, but they're almost always 15 minute days. Um, I feel like in, in Baldur's gate three, you go into a new area and you're like, this area doesn't look that big. It'll probably take me 20, 30 minutes to explore it. And then you find yourself in the same place <laughs> two and a half, three hours later. You know? Oh, yeah.
0: It is, it's It's just never ending.
1: It, I think it's, Um, and this is going to be a pro or a con, sort of depending on who you are as a player. But I feel like Baller's Gate 3 is like impossible to play in less than one and a half, two hour game sessions at a time. And I I think um, because, one, you just keep finding more and more stuff and it's really got a fantastic like, okay, after this, I'll just go long rest really quick and then I'll come back and I'll keep going in this dungeon just one more time, just up until the next long rest, right? But you just keep going and going and going and going because these these areas are so sprawling and they keep going down. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you go so <laughs> deep into the earth. <laughs> in Baldur's so country. deep. You just, yeah. you just keep going. Um, but yeah, it, but the thing is, is every single game session that I've had where I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3, I'm enjoying it. It's a ton of fun. Um, where I'm at right now, I was talking to Cameron about, I've kind of got myself into a pickle. And so tonight after we record this, I'm going to get myself out of that pickle. Um, and, but that's just how the game goes. Like it's really hard to play this game in short chunks. And it's really hard, to, I would say, to balance Baldur's Gate 3 with other games because when you play this game and you're like i'm only gonna play for an hour it's three hours later you're like well i don't have time for any other games and then that's just how your night goes
0: it's a true adventure in every sense of the word like it truly is and it it rewards you for everything that you do both in story and in like itemization even like just finding cool items finding cool weapons and armor and like finding little notes that open up like hey here's Uh, One example in act one is like, you'll find a note that's like, Hey, I need a certain type of material and you can craft special weapons in this blacksmith. And then you go seven, eight, nine hours later, you come across that material and you're like, Oh yeah. Like there's this thing back in this blacksmith and I can go create this weapon. And then you go and you create it and you get this awesome weapon. Uh, And so the game's just constantly rewarding you with, you know cool items, cool things to do, cool people to talk to. Yeah. It's just excellent. Now we come to the big one Ooh. with Baldur's Gate 3. And this is a conversation that started when the game came out. It it went online and it got it got sort of it got really divisive and there was articles written about this. Did Baldur's Gate 3 set the bar too high? And there was this myth that was put out there that like devs were scared. because boulders gate had set the bar like too high uh and i think that was all made up and that was just for clicks um because i think most devs looked at it as like this is just an awesome game like yeah we should totally it wasn't about like hey there's this new bar now for rpgs it was more just like hey this is an awesome game and that's cool and we're gonna make our own game (laughs) yeah um that 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 being said that being said I think the story around boulders gate is that they did something. the impact on the industry is going to be interesting because from an, from a sort of bird's eye view of the success of this game is really, really high. Like obviously they had massive player accounts and I'm sure they've sold a ton of copies and PlayStation five. They're going to sell even more copies and that's awesome for the studio. This was self-funded by Larian. It took them six years there were three years in early access. I think they spent all their money to make this game. They blew up the studio. A lot of people don't know this. This studio is bigger than Sony Santa Monica, Son, Sony Santa Monica and Sucker Punch, which made God of War and Ghost of Tsushima, yeah. which is crazy to think about. Like This is a huge studio, AAA size, that funded itself based on the success of Divinity Original Sin 2, and so yeah like you can look at it and be like hey there's a standard race here i mean you cannot deny that after having played boulders gate 3 you are not going to look at other rpgs in the same way you just that's impossible as a player to not that is now my new anchor for rpgs it's my new anchor like everything i play now is going to be compared against that and that kind of sucks because not a lot of stuff is going to live up to that right right yeah (laughs) that being said you know it is what it is right it's like everyone has to make their own game everyone has to play to their own strengths larian had a unique skill set that was perfectly encapsulated to make this game at this time you know for what it was which i don't think those circumstances cannot be recreated and so yeah it's just interesting i don't yeah i don't know
1: I'm with you. I'm I'm tempted to echo what I said at the very end of our Tears of the Kingdom episode, which is this game was born of unique circumstances and cannot be replicated. Therefore, trying to replicate it is kind of I don't know, an insane endeavor. Like that's not a realistic endeavor. Um But the fact the the fact of the matter is that Baldur's Gate 3 and Larian Studios is a different scenario than Tears of the Kingdom and Nintendo, right? Uh, Nintendo was able to uh, afford giving Tears of the Kingdom an entire year of polish, right? Um, After the game was sort of content complete. Baldur's Gate 3 was in early access for three years. Now, I'm excited that there are game companies, even if they're massive and they're dealing with tons of money, that they are in that type of scenario They're in that situation where they can give that extra time and they can, you know, deal with feedback and and really come out with a really incredible product. Um, I love that. But I just don't think there are that many studios, even amongst the really big ones, right, where that is the case. And so I think expecting games of sort of this caliber is just super unrealistic from every single point of view. And so what I said at the end of the Tears of the Kingdom episode is, impact on the industry I think it'll have a lot of a lot of conversation and a lot of buzz but in terms of are we going to see games really be able to replicate Baldur's Gate 3 I don't think so I I don't think we're going to see that I think we're going to see games that are of a similar genre genre that um take some things from Baldur's Gate 3 but they're going to make their own games because Baldur's Gate 3 I believe is born out of a scenario that is extremely rare so I think in terms of like we're not going to see a Baldur's Gate 3 clone. We're going to see things, decisions, creative and game design decisions that were made in Baldur's Gate 3 that make it successful. We're going to see those um, recreated in other games, which I think is super fantastic. For example, the combat, I think the way that it's streamlined and a, a little more coherent, I feel like, than Divinity Originals in 2, like something along those lines we're going to see. But if you're expecting like another 200-hour CRPG to come out, you know that plays exactly like D I I don't know. I, I just don't think that's a realistic expectation.
0: The best narrative of this game, when it comes to impact on the industry, is that on paper, this game should not even exist. Yeah, <laughs> because no. And Jason Schreier said it, and we we talked about this. He said it is like no publicly traded company ever makes Baldur's Gate three. They just don't make it. Period boulders Gate three gets made because sven winky or wink i don't know how to say his last name who has the majority shares at larian with his wife and is the key decision maker the game director and ceo of the company is like hey we want to make a dungeons and dragons game and they went and they got the license and they made it and they made a freaking crpg with a triple a 200 million dollar budget yeah that just is not going to happen. You're never, Bioware is making, this is the cover, like Final Fantasy 16. What was the message from those those game directors and like studio heads over there? It's like, this is not a turn-based game. We're making an action game. People don't want turn-based games. Right. Right. And then you see this game just having all the success in the world because they just made what they wanted to make. And it's that conversation we have quite often, Jake, around creativity, Right it just creativity like there's no guarantees right right? there's no guarantees i think if you find a formula that works and then and this is why this is what hollywood does right you find the formula that works and you make a ton of sequels in video games right it's it's you can kind of do the same thing but it is but if you want sort of that new fresh uh sort of wild success and to generate like something new that makes a lot of money and does, you just kind of go hard on your wildest creative ideas that you're the most passionate about. The problem is, is like that's sort of impossible at companies that are run by executives, you know, with bonuses based on making minimizing risk as much as they possibly can. And boulders gay three is an exercise in taking the biggest risk you could possibly ever take. Yeah. Right. And when it comes to video games, and it's a risk that paid off. <coughs> that doesn't mean that another studio can go do this and that risk will pay off. Yeah. They could it, it it just may not. Um but what I do hope this causes I hope this causes those studios to look and say, "Hey, look. I hope game, you know, game directors and 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 folks at these studios can now go in and pitch projects. And be like, hey, look at Boulders Gate 3. Look what happened there. We can do this, right? And then they get to go make the project that they're passionate about. And that leads to some really freaking cool video games.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of other games that have been able to do something similar to Larian Studios in this case. I mean, one of them is is from software, right? They make a specific type of game. They make it really well. And it blew up with Elden Ring, right? And now at this point, they kind of can do what they want. I mean, they decided to revive a 15 year old franchise with Armored Core 6. I remember reading uh, some headline that was like, wow, it takes some guts to not do a reboot of the series even and do like a remake, but rather just to continue the series like, oh, by the way, we're doing Armored Core 6. Doesn't matter. It's been 15 years since Armored Core 5. You know what I mean? Um, and then the other example I can think of is, is Obsidian when they made grounded a game that Cameron and I both love, right? Is Obsidian's not known for games like grounded, right? Or even like Sucker Punch with, uh, Ghost of Tsushima, they were not known for making that type of a game, but what it took was the financial backers to have trust in a creative project that it could succeed. And there are some flops there. Of course, there are going to be some flops there. But I think if you want to see massive breakout moments like Elden Ring and like Baldur's Gate 3, there's got to be some trust in your creative leads.
0: Yeah, this is the whole problem with the SAG-AFTRA strikes, you know, not paying writers and actors and so on, is that these studios are trying to minimize risk as much as possible. And how do you do that? Well, you just literally don't pay anyone (laughs) (laughs) and that that's a fantastic way you know the MBAs in their little in the conference room at at fox and disney when they do these balance sheets like yeah that's how you minimize risk like pay how do we pay as much as possible Uh, or excuse me how do we pay as little as possible for the biggest return possible it's like you don't pay your writers the problem is is that the writers uh, and the actors are the ones that bring the magic and create creativity that people want to consume. And the same is true in the gaming industry. Um, now the gaming industry is not, you know, obviously on strike, but you know, projects are getting, get squashed and things get changed for the sake of minimizing risk. But you need to have a little bit of risk, right? You need to put some things on the line. Uh, yeah. BioWare is the one that comes to mind, right? Yeah. Because that studio basically got, I think mandated to go make Anthem the way I understand it. I understand that that wasn't like somebody like, Hey, we can go make a live service game. It was like Bioware. What were they good at? And what do they want to make? They probably wanted to make, keep making RPGs. And they got told like, no, you got to go make this thing. And it just didn't work. Um, Anyways.
1: I mean, that was part of the case of Redfall too, right? Where um, the
0: Yeah. They didn't really want to make, redfall i think the way it was right yeah it, or... it comes
1: out that you know it was zenimax putting pressure on um arcane what well, austin right to make something multiplayer with microtransactions which is something that they absolutely were not known for or had much experience in doing and it's estimated that like 70 percent of the workforce who made prey had been gone in, during redfall's production and then we see what happened to redfall you know Cameron and I were still optimistic. We think Redfall can be saved at some point. But the, the 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 reason why it launched part of the way that it did was that because suddenly the creative direction, you know, they didn't uh, when they were making they, this, you know, nebulous day, when they were making these financial decisions of what they needed to what Arcane Austin needed to produce to make money, they thought, okay, you're game developers, you have skills, but why don't you do something outside of your wheelhouse instead of what you're really good at? And then suddenly you take these creatives who have developed skills in a particular area, and then you're asking them to do something brand new when they don't have that creative vision. That's To me, that is the key difference between Grounded from Obsidian and Redfall from Arcane is that Grounded was something that a bunch of people Obsidian were like, hey, we want to do this. We're pumped about this. These are our ideas. And then you have Redfall from Arcane, and the reporting has shown, right, that This isn't something that we really wanna do, but we kinda have to do it, so we're gonna do it. There's just that lack of trust and creative leadership and you see the two results.
0: Man, grounded is so good.
1: Dude, grounded is so good.
0: (laughs) I wanna play they've added all this content, like a new bosses and they keep we need to do another playthrough. Once once the fall settles down, that's on the list somewhere for another playthrough.
1: Another playthrough, yeah
0: well jake we're an hour and 20 in pretty long on boulders gate 3 any last thoughts comments on boulders gate 3 from larian
1: Whew. well it's too early to be talking game of the year stuff but i gotta read this text to our listeners that i sent cameron i've been thinking was this today maybe this, this is today or yesterday i can't remember but um I've been thinking a lot about the games I've been playing so far this year. And we still have a year's worth of game uh, games ahead of us in the next few months, right? And as far as Game of the Year stuff, what we do for our episode is we take our categories and then we pick our, our picks for those. So like best narrative from this year, best mechanics, best gameplay loop, and then Game of the Year. And I haven't even finished Baldur's Gate 3. I'm, you know, really deep, deep into Act 1. And I think narratively this game is... It's the top and uh, if you like good writing, if you love fantasy in any capacity, even if you're not super well versed with Dungeons and Dragons, I just think that you are going to get so much narratively out of this game. And I want to throw out there that I'm playing this game on story mode. I'm playing it on easy because I really want to just enjoy the story and the people and the characters and how I'm interacting with them. And I don't want to lose a lot of sleep on, on combat or other things. And I'm having such a blast playing it in this way. And so I think if if you're on the fence about Baldur's Gate 3, if it's reached you word of mouth, and you're looking for a really meaty game to sink your teeth into, and you're really into high fantasy, this game is going to be one that really works for you.
0: Absolutely. This is uh jettisoned to one of my favorite games of all time. This will be my game of the year. I mean, unless... I don't know unless something wild happens in Starfield or in Spider Man. I mean, something <laughs> really wild. Yeah, uh, this will definitely be my game of the year. One of the favorite games I played in recent memory. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I I want everyone to play this and experience it. Um, so glad it's it's making it to Xbox uh, and PS Five. It's going to be everywhere. Uh, yeah, this is this is one million percent worth your time. Uh, if you like video games at all, like don't sit on this. Even if you're scared of turn-based, uh, yeah, just give this a shot. If you don't like fantasy, you might not like it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one thing that I think is. I mean, obviously, there's turn-based and there's a lot of mechanics and stuff, but if you like fantasy, you're gonna like this game.
0: It is a little weird though because I feel like this this has a little bit of sci-fi ness in it, which is kind of interesting. So it's sort of a sort of a combo, cool combo there, but. Yeah, Boulder's Gate 3. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of the pre Bonus Podcast talking Boulder's Gate 3, giving our breakdown and analysis. We hope that this analysis was help you, helpful for you deciding if this is the game you want to play or just giving you some food for thought and thinking about this one and its place in the industry and its place in this crazy year of games. Uh, we th- appreciate you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to help us out, leave us a review. Uh, wherever you listen, that's the best way to kind of get the show promoted more and get more people to find it. Don't have a ton of reviews, so if you like it and you made it all the way through this episode, stop what you're doing, take 30 seconds, leave us a quick review. That really helps. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, slash X, at preordercast, Jacob, Jacob, underscore chiptip18, me at mass generic. and then once again, I'll remind you, patreon.com, slash preordercast. You can get more from us. Uh, you can get early access to the shows, uh, any impressions from Jake articles and other tidbits that we're putting up there. Thanks so much and have a great night.